0: Thank you, Lindsay and Ethan and Teresa for that song. Uh, In case you didn't recognize it, that song is essentially a a retelling or connection with the passage for this morning. Uh, That doesn't mean that you don't get to hear a sermon about it, but it does get you prepared for the text. So take your copy of God's word and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. I trust that you... Uh, we're able to have a joyful uh, Christmas, even though, uh, as always, every year, sometimes we forget about it, but things don't always go like we planned. Uh, we look around and we see uh, many people are not here this morning, and of course we know some are traveling, some still have family activities, but many are sick. Uh, many have been around people who are sick, and so uh, this hasn't maybe been quite the, the Christmas season that they were hoping for and expecting, and so... We're going to pray for them later in the service, but uh, this week as I was uh, preparing, I was reminded that that's not unusual, that uh, many people often have things happen to them around this time of year um, that are not what they planned, and it's not always as joyful as we would hope for it to be. Uh, December 25th, 1863 was not a very Merry Christmas for Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Longfellow was one of the greatest poets of the 19th century. But he was also a man marked by sorrow and grief. Henry's first wife died uh, in a miscarriage. And a few decades later, his second wife died after her dress caught on fire. And uh, because of the severe burns that she received, she ultimately died. And Henry Longfellow himself received severe burns while he was trying to save his wife. Uh, And eventually he began to grow that long beard that he was famous for because of those burns. That was in 1861. Two years later, uh, one of his sons slipped away one March morning uh, unannounced and and without his father's blessing and went and joined the fighting in the Civil War. And that was 1863. And by Christmas of that year, uh, Longfellow had received word that his son had been wounded in battle, uh, nearly paralyzed, and he faced a, a lengthy recovery in the days and months ahead. And so on that Christmas day in 1863, as Longfellow listened to the church bells ring, he heard those Christmas bells ring, and he knew the message that they were supposed to symbolize, and he, saw, he felt a disconnect between what he knew was the Christmas message and what he saw in the world around him. As he looked at the nation around him torn uh, torn apart by war, it did not seem that that message of peace on earth and goodwill toward men Uh, It it just rang hollow to him on that Christmas day. And so Longfellow put his, his angst into writing, and he penned a poem that we now know, As I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And the first verse of that poem says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, Wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Longfellow knew that those Christmas bells were supposed to be ringing out the message that the angels announced in Luke chapter 2 of peace on earth. But again, as he looked at his nation torn apart and his family torn apart, uh, he did not feel that peace. Peace seemed almost unrealistic, almost impossible. He continued to write about the cannons, thundering uh, their, their shots and how it drowned out the message of peace. He said it was as if an earthquake rent. The hearthstones of a continent, made forlorn, the houses born of peace on earth and goodwill to men. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. That was written over 150 years ago, but Longfellow's world doesn't seem that far removed from us today. Our nation is still marked by strife and division, And we seem to be in yet another wave of this wretched plague. And will there ever truly be peace on this earth? Even with all the joy that I trust you've experienced these last few days with family, again, many of you have experienced great difficulties even in these last few days. Some of you experienced Christmas without a loved one here with you. Uh, Some of you were able to get together with family, but... Uh, When you get together with family, good things happen. There's a joy of seeing everybody, but there's also a sorrow because sometimes you, you have to just bite your tongue because you don't want to start an argument with somebody that you love and you care about. We know that we serve a God who is sovereign and in control of all things. Sometimes it doesn't feel like everything is under control, even, perhaps even especially, at Christmas. So this morning I pray that we will be encouraged As we learn more about our Prince of Peace, as we behold our King who reigns. So if you found your place in God's Word in the book of Isaiah chapter 11, we're going to read the first nine verses. So if you're able and willing, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be the full of knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come to you now hearing your word. We've received your word, Lord. We pray you would help us to submit to it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to set aside all distractions and that we would uh, be able to to hear the message you would have for us today. Lord, bring conviction where we need conviction and comfort where we need comfort. And Lord, would you make us more righteous, more faithful uh, to be like your king, King Jesus. We uh, consecrate this time for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. I trust that most, if not all of us, would would agree. We would say Jesus is king, but sometimes we wonder what does that kingdom look like? What will it look like? How will things be when the prince of peace reigns on this earth? Well, this morning I want us to see four characteristics of the king who reigns. We will see the king's origins, the king's spirit, the king's righteousness, and the king's peace. We begin here in verse 1. Uh, the king's origins here in verse 1. Uh, my family and I, we took a, a few moments yesterday and we watched Queen Elizabeth's annual Christmas address. In just a few months, Queen Elizabeth will begin her 70th year on the throne. But you know, she hasn't become one of the world's longest reigning monarchs simply because of her virtue or because of her character. The reason that she is queen is because her father was king and her grandfather was king uh, before him. And so, like most monarchs, Queen Elizabeth was not born in humble origins. She was born uh, in very uh, rich and, and wonderful circumstances. Most monarchs don't have humble origins. They're usually born into the wealthy home of their rich parents. But not so with our king. Our king comes from humble origins. Yes, our king is ruler of the universe. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He made all things in the space of six days by the word of his power. But when God became a man, he didn't come like a king. He came like a pauper. Verse 1 tells us of King Jesus' humble origins. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now already in the book of Isaiah, the, the forest of Israel has been cut down. And then the forest of Judah was cut down. And the forest of Assyria was cut down. And it seems like the hope of God's people has been cut down. But out of that stump of Jesse comes a shoot, a rod, as the old King James says, a tender flower, as Lindsay sang about. A tender flower will spring forth. It looked like the house of David had been destroyed after Assyria conquered Judah. It looked like God's promises had come to nothing. Jesse, as you remember, is the father of King David. But out of Jesse's house comes a new David, an even greater David. In that little town of Bethlehem, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Micah chapter 5. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in you, O Bethlehem. Out of that stump of Jesse comes a shoot. And out of what appeared to be death, there comes life and even fruit. This is our king's humble origins, not in the royal palace of Jerusalem, but in the humble stable of Bethlehem, born in humble circumstances, just like his forerunner, David, in the house of Jesse. So behold, our king. Secondly, we see in verse two, the king's spirit, the king's spirit there in verse two. You know, no matter how nobly many kings and rulers begin, far too many earthly rulers quickly become consumed. They become dominated by their desire to maintain their power, to keep their wealth, to keep their fame. What about our king? What is he marked by? He's marked by the spirit of the Lord. Look at verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Behold, our king, he's marked seven times over by the spirit of the Lord. Saul, the first king of Israel, had once been marked by the spirit of the Lord. But there came a day when Saul uh, was no longer marked by the spirit of the Lord. He was afflicted by a harmful spirit. And as you study the kings of Israel, you see a few times when they're marked by the spirit of the Lord. But most of the time, those fleshly kings were controlled by... Desires. But our King, he has the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of the one true and living God resting upon him. Because of this, King Jesus is marked by wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. All that Israel lacked can be found in the true Israelite, Jesus Christ. And all of those things that Israel's kings lacked can be found in the rightful heir to the throne of David, King Jesus. Isaiah, as he opened his book, he declared in chapter 1, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master and the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. But God, in his goodness and kindness, has sent a king who does know, who does understand, and who rules in righteousness. Look at verses three through five. We see the king's righteousness. Verse three says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Well, as we come to this last Lord's day of this year, can you look back over this year and, and, and say, my delight has been in the fear of the Lord. My greatest delight this year has been in doing the will of the Lord. Now, I know that's a tough question. I trust that none of us are satisfied with the answer. But by God's grace, we can grow in our delight in the Lord. Because of our King who rules and reigns by His Spirit, we can grow in our fear of the Lord, our love of the Lord, our reverence for the Lord. This King of Isaiah chapter 11 His delight, His joy, His greatest fulfillment is in the fear of the Lord. Jesus said in John chapter 4 verse 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. And because it is our King's great delight to do the will of the Lord, verse 3 continues, He will not judge by what His eyes see. He will not decide disputes by what His ears hear. But with righteousness He will judge the poor. He will decide with equity for the meek of the earth what a ruler our king is. You know, one of the greatest uh, tools in any legal system is eyewitness testimony. Someone who has seen with their eyes and heard with their ears. But the only problem with that is that our ears can be wrong and our eyes can be wrong. But our king does not judge by what he sees with his eyes or what he hears with his ears. He judges with righteousness. He judges perfectly. There will never, ever be a mistrial in King Jesus' courtroom. There will never be judicial misconduct while Judge Jesus sits on the throne. Even the very best human judges can make mistakes. Even under the very best of circumstances, sometimes the poor and the meek of the earth... Are mistreated by the legal system. But not so with our king. Behold our king. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Human judges. Are only able to announce. The judgment with the breath of their lips. But our king is able to execute judgment. With the breath of his lips. He not only speaks the judicial sentence, he carries it out just by speaking. We sing about this in Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. We sing, The Prince of Darkness Grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. We read about that in Revelation chapter 19. John says in Revelation 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then verse 15, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Our great king is so righteous, so holy, so perfect... That he brings about perfect justice simply with the breath of his lips. Behold our King. Look at verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, when we hear belts being discussed, we think about outer garments. But the idea here is not an outer garment, it's an inner garment, an intimate garment. We think about the leather strap that holds our pants up. But that's not what's going on here. When it, It's talking about the most inner garment that a person would wear. And when you get to the most intimate essence of our king, it's righteousness. When no one else is around, when everything else is stripped away, our king reigns in righteousness. Our king, Jesus, is clothed in righteousness. He is the essence, the very definition of righteousness. And if you've trusted Christ as Savior, when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sins. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But even as we've been made righteous by Christ, we are still called to put on righteousness. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us that we're in a spiritual battle and we must be prepared. One way we're to be prepared is by continually putting on righteousness. Brothers and sisters, as one year ends and we we approach a new year, are you satisfied with how well you've put off the old ways of life this past year and how you've put on righteousness? I'm not. I'm not satisfied. I want to continue to grow in righteousness, to be marked by righteousness because my king is marked by righteousness. And it's only through him... And by his spirit, that my delight can truly be in the Lord. When no one else is around, when everything else is stripped away, may we be found faithful and righteous like our King. We've seen the King's humble origins, and we've seen the King's spirit and the King's righteousness. Here in verses 6 through 9, we get a marvelous portrait of the King's peace. Verses 6 through 9, the King's peace. You remember last Sunday we saw Isaiah told us in chapter 9 that a child would be born. And one of his many characteristics, one of his many names is Prince of Peace. Now Isaiah tells us that this shoot from the stem of Jesse, he will bring about a period of unprecedented peace. Not seen since the Garden of Eden. We've discussed this recently in our, our series, The Book Ends Through the Bible. We saw about the wonderful millennial reign of Christ in Revelation chapter 20, where it speaks of a period of a thousand years where Christ will physically reign from the earthly throne of David. Various passages in God's Word, very, various uh, scriptures tell us what a wonderful time this will be. The reign of the Prince of Peace will not only have an effect on our human relationships... It'll even affect the animal kingdom as well. Look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. I'm going to pause right there. Notice that it doesn't say the lion shall lay down with the lamb. I'm sure that the lion will lay down with the lamb, but that's just not what it says. That phrase is not used in Scripture. That, That phrase comes from a song, a beautiful song. It's slightly incorrect, but a beautiful song called Peace in the Valley, written by Thomas A. Dorsey. It was made famous by... Mahalia Jackson and Elvis, um, that's just free information. Treat that like an extra Christmas gift. Do with that as you will. But notice that it doesn't say the lion will lay down with the lamb. It says the wolf shall lay down with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. Now, I don't have to wax eloquently here to help you understand that the wolf does not live with the lamb. The wolf devours the lamb. And the leopard does not snuggle up with a young goat. The leopard snacks on the young goat. The leopard feasts on the young goat. And if a lion can find himself around a fattened calf, his first thought is not peace. His first thought is supper. But this is what the Prince of Peace does. He brings about a kingdom of peace so thoroughly changed that predators become companions that carnivores become herbivores, as you see in verse 7. But don't miss the end of verse 6. A little child shall lead them. How often we misuse this verse. When a particularly precocious child says something wise beyond their years, we reply, and a little child shall lead them. When puzzled parents have a problem and a child comes up with something uh, particularly helpful, A misty-eyed grandparent says, and a little child shall lead them. But look at the context of these verses. What is Isaiah talking about? Is he talking about the relationship between parents and children? No, he's talking about the millennial kingdom of Christ. In fact, these verses have nothing to do with children leading adults. Throughout Scripture, it's clear that that's not God's design. It's actually a sign of judgment for children to be an authority over adults. These verses are about the millennial kingdom and the child is not leading adults, the child is leading animals. This is why it's even better to get it right and to understand what's going on because small children aren't normally able to lead these animals. Even uh, more docile animals like sheep and calves, a small child, a toddler, is not able to generally handle them on their own. Certainly not able to handle wolves or leopards or lions. But when the reign of the Prince of Peace comes... Even small children will be able to exercise dominion over creation, just like the Creator intended. You remember we saw that in Genesis 3. That was God's design. And because we failed, we're not able to fully exercise dominion over creation. But when the Prince of Peace reigns, even children will be able to exercise dominion, just like God intended. But it gets even more remarkable. Look at verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Oh my goodness. A nursing child. A small, helpless, indefensible child can play over the hole of a deadly cobra and not be harmed? That cobra's instinct to strike would now be gone? And then the weaned child, who's only a little bit older... But he's able to foolishly run headlong straight into danger. Still inadequate, unable to protect itself from a deadly snake. But yet, it'll be able to put its hand over the den of the adder and be unharmed. What an amazing thought. As one man put it this way, he said, On that day there will neither be a danger that strikes or a danger that lurks. What a day that will be. We sang about it earlier, as Terry pointed out. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. When Christ returns, when he sets up his earthly kingdom, we will see peace greater than we can imagine. He gives us a summary of the king's peace there in verse 9. Verse 9, the first half says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. They will not hurt. They will not commit evil. They won't do the wrong thing. But they also won't destroy. They won't corrupt that which is good. So, positively and negative, negatively, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Throughout Scripture, we see God meeting with His people on a mountain. Over and over again, God meets with His people on a mountain, and then that mountain becomes holy. But on that day, on the last day, the entire earth becomes the Lord's holy mountain. Why is that? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine that? To know the Lord, not to know about the Lord, but to know the Lord in a saving way, in a meaningful way, in a deep, intimate, personal way. One of Isaiah's contemporaries named Jeremiah. Jeremiah tells us in chapter 9, he says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things... I delight, declares the Lord. Are you able to boast in the Lord today? That you know Him and understand Him in a saving, meaningful way. I pray that that's true of each of us here today. Isaiah had already condemned the people in the book. He condemned the people of Israel for not knowing and for not understanding. Throughout the Gospels, we see people who should know, who should understand who Jesus is, but they fail to know. They fail to understand who the Messiah is. But on that day, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Behold our King who reigns, who brings peace. Do you know this King today? Not do you know about him, but do you know him in a meaningful, saving way? Is your delight in the fear of the Lord when he returns? Will you be clothed in his righteousness or will he slay you with the word of his mouth? Repent today and trust Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Submit to him today or be crushed by him on the last day. As Henry Longfellow listened To those Christmas bells ring out, as he contemplated this message of peace on earth and goodwill to men, he concluded that he could not see the entirety of the story. Now I don't know if Longfellow was a believer or not, but he rightly understood that just because things seemed out of control, it didn't mean that they were really, truly out of control. That God was fully sovereign and in control of all things. And so he concluded his poem, that hymn, that we know as I heard the bells on Christmas Day, he concluded it this way. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, and the right prevail with peace on earth and goodwill to men. Our King... This infant who was born meek and lowly from the line of Jesse, he rules and reigns over all. One day we will see his physical earthly reign. And because of that, because of his perfection as our king, will you gladly serve him today? Let's go to our God in prayer.